This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing, each of us does it our own unique way. And that's why TD Ameritrade offers everything you need to invest on your terms. From award-winning technology to personalized guidance, visit tdameritrade.com slash YTDA, and that's W-H-Y-T-D-A, to get started. Thanks also to LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. The best place to find great talent for your hiring needs is LinkedIn. In fact, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. For a $50 credit towards your first job post, visit linkedin.com MF. Terms and conditions apply. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, bro! Hi, Austin. So we're not alone. We have guests today to help us tackle the mailbag. It's Jason Moser and Abby Malin. They're analysts, of course, here at The Motley Fool. They're going to help us answer your questions about the war on cash, stock buybacks, (laughs) and advice for college students. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Jason Moser is back. Howdy. It's been a little while. A little while, but I'm always happy to be here. Always happy to have you here. And we have a first-timer on the show today, Abby Malin. Yay. So some of our uh, Answers listeners might know Abby from some of our Motley Fool services. You spoke at Fool Fest, et cetera, et cetera. But for everyone else, why don't you share with them? And everyone knows you, Jason, so whatever. Uh, (laughs) Abby, why don't you share with listeners your foolish story? How did you come to be sitting across this table today? Well, I know you mentioned earlier that we're talking about um, college advice, and so I actually came here straight out of college. I was guided here by a professor, and so I've been here about three years now. It's so, been three years? Are you serious? Yeah, I just had my... Yeah. Didn't you start off as an intern? Yeah, I started oh, as an intern and then was hired full-time. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you for joining us on the show, uh, and hopefully this will go awesome and we'll all agree it's a great experience and do it again sometime. I'm Sounds locking good. you in now. Is there any doubt that this is going to go really <laughs> well and you'll invite That's us back? That's what I was looking for. There you go. Sometimes we have Oreos on the show. So <laughs> I remember that. So if that entices you to come back, this is not one of those shows. We All should right. do a beer tasting episode one day, too. Instead of Oreos, we'll just do some local beer. How about that? I'm in. Okay. Rick's in on that one. You can take my place Bros on out. that one, buddy. Bro's out. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it, shall we? The first question comes to us from Jordan. Jordan writes, I'm trying to decide between owning shares of MasterCard, Visa, Square, and PayPal, or one of the following ETFs. Prime Mobile Payments, ticker IPAY, or Global X Fintechs, ticker FINX. If you were to choose individual stocks over the ETFs and you had $10,000, would you put 25% in each stock? Well, you know my answer, right? I mean, we've talked about the war on cash before. I'm sure people are probably getting sick of me talking about the war on cash. You're pro uh, war. You're pro war on I, cash. I am pro war. It was so funny. How... I said something about the war on cash on Twitter one day, and it included Square in the conversation. Uh-huh. And somebody from Square replied back, and they said, "No war. Cash is cool. We just like options." So, I, you know, I don't think they fully knew the backstory, and I was going to get into it and show them <laughs> so, the returns and stuff like that. But so we have Hawk in the studio, <laughs> Jason Moser, and he, you're. You're definitely pro war on cash, but do you buy individual stocks or do you go for an ETF? So for me personally, I mean the point of the the basket of stocks that I put together was to give investors the opportunity to have their own little kind of fund um, and essentially eliminate all other external factors involved, whether that be management fees or churn or whatever uh, you know funds can tend to present. So for me personally. Um, I would and did go with with the basket of the four stocks, and I think 
the track record itself has done very well. We just celebrated uh, the Warren Cash's birthday uh, a few days back, and, <laughs> and in the first year of of, uh, of existence, the the basket of stocks returned a total of eighty percent, not bad, versus the market's fourteen percent. Not so bad. Obviously, exceeding expectations there. And to me, there yeah, I was going through PayPal's uh, earnings call here uh, recently, and there was a, a snippet in the call that really, to me, summed up why I think this basket works. So I'm going to read a, a quick quote from uh, PayPal CEO Dan Schulman to, to give people an idea of why I think this basket works. Uh, it goes, quote, first of all, obviously, we respect all of our competitors. We learn from them, but we are really focused on our customers and what their needs are. And that's why that's what we pay a, trend, a tremendous amount of attention to. And we feel if we can solve their pain points better than anyone else, we'll continue to win and be a leading platform in the digital payment space. Secondly, I'd say it's obviously not a zero-sum game. We're operating in what we think is a $100 trillion total addressable market. End quote. Now, this is to give you an idea of the reason why I think that basket works. Number one, it's not about picking just one winner. There are going to be many winners. And number two, it's a massive market opportunity. I tend to discount that $100 trillion a little bit, just for posterity, for, uh, to be a little bit more conservative. Uh, but, but I think that the point still remains that this gives you excellent exposure to companies that are really guiding the way there. So, for me, I'm going war on cash over the funds ten times out of ten. And would you would you split up the the investment equally? Yes, and that was the point of the basket was to keep it simple and just do twenty five percent in each holding. And uh, and and and, I mean it doesn't it doesn't mean you can't add to positions as time goes on and find really the companies that that perhaps are outperforming and and build those positions up a little bit more over time, uh, or you can just continue to to add to them equally. But I think it really works, and I think it's going to be something that lasts for a long time. Do you think we perhaps made the mistake with this question that Jordan heard Jason on another show talk about this, and then he wanted a second opinion, but instead of getting a second opinion, we're just, just, opinion. We're just really Moser. we're just hammering. Jason the point Moser. Here. Several weeks ago, Jason Moser <laughs> said that you should buy these four stocks. Do you agree that that is still? The I, I mean, I, does Jason Moser know what he's talking? Let's about? Let's be clear here too. I mean, a lot of this depends on the individual investor's risk tolerance, right? So, I mean, I, coming from my perspective, I would say I have a much higher risk tolerance. Uh, versus other people who may not have quite as high a risk tolerance. So there's no question that that this basket of four stocks is more concentrated than, than most funds out there. And that's going to be the, the, the nice part about having a fund is it will be more diversified, uh, probably less volatile. Perhaps that caps the returns, right? Maybe the basket of stocks outperforms because it's a bit more concentrated. So you have to weigh that. And it's going to be different for each individual investor. But bottom line, Jason Moser agrees with Jason Moser. Yeah, well, of course, as always. But I also think really the bottom line is here that this payments market opportunity is tremendous. I think it's long-lasting, and I think it's one that every investor needs to have exposure to. All right, next question is for Abby, and it comes from Clay. What is the best money investment advice you can give to a college student? I have some money that I would like to invest, but I don't know how, where, when, or if I should. I think this is a Really good question. I think probably a lot of people face. Um, so just taking it step by step, there should you? Yes, you should. Um, when I would say sooner rather than later. Now, if you're thinking about it, um, data shows that because of compounding returns, you'll actually set yourself in a stronger financial position by starting sooner. So um, I think Clay is obviously on top of it. He's still in college right. and already thinking right. about it. So. Um, 
I commend him for that. And then for an answer of that you don't know how, I would recommend that the first place you start is by comparing brokerage account options and opening one. So um, I personally use TD Ameritrade. I think they have a lot of flexibility. They have options trades and plenty of research, which I use. But for young adults, I recommend um, at least looking at Robinhood. They were previously a mobile-based app, but now they do have a website, actually. And they offer commission-free trades, and they recently launched commission-free options trading as well. Um, I think it's pretty interesting, and I think it's a low cost. And when we think about maybe opening accounts, it's probably a little bit smaller. So keeping those commission costs in check or zero is <laughs> ideal. Um, but again, there's a lot of options. So I think just starting to research and pick one. Um, and then where, after you've bro- opened your brokerage account, so where to put your money is obviously the million dollar question. And if I had a great succinct answer to that, I would be running this company. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean, I think there's a couple different strategies to start. I think you could start by buying ETFs or just index funds for an instantly diversified portfolio. I also think it's another effective strategy to buy high-quality companies that you're interested in holding for the long term and just sort of build out your portfolio, so starting with one or two, and then maybe just adding over time. Um, Again, keep your commission costs at a minimum, so um, making sure that you don't wipe out any returns before you even get in your position is really important. And then maybe taking some sort of combination of the two, so ETFs and maybe some concentrated positions in particular equities that you like. Um, One strategy that I used and I felt really helped me was to make a list of companies that you want to buy and then add money and invest on a schedule rather than being so um, price conscious at the beginning just because over the long term it's not really going to matter that much as long as it's within, you know, a reasonable range and I think, you know, this can help you just build good habits for getting um, as an adult investor with a larger portfolio. I think it's probably a good place. Mm-hmm. And do you feel probably as a college student Clay is going to have some debt hanging over his head at some point? Do you feel it's okay to have that student debt and start dipping your toes in investing or do you want to pay that off before you really start investing? I think So, I actually was helping my sister with this because she went to PA school and she is sort of in the same situation and was asking me. I think that there's um, obviously reasonable limits on both of those, but I do think that if you can manage that investing now will really help you down the long term and with interest rates where they are and as low as they are, it's probably in your best interest to invest as well as pay down debts. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Most student loans are in the mid-single digits. Ideally, your investments would earn more than that. But if you're talking about credit card debt, where rates are nowadays, the average rate is 17%, in that situation, I think I'd be more inclined to pay that off first, then start investing. All right, next question comes to us from Anthony. My question is about financial reports, specifically balance sheets and income statements. I want to sound (laughs) to sound like one of the smart folks, and you mean that as a compliment. I know. I I am extremely self-facing when it comes to this, and yes, I am extremely nerdy when it comes to this stuff. All right, then it sounds like this question is coming to you. I want to sound like one of the smart folks when it comes to explaining my stock picks, but I never feel confident when it comes to reading their financial filings. Is there a quick reference guide that breaks down the categories? P.S. One of my wedding couples told me they listened to all the Motley Fool pad- podcasts, so Noreen and Ryan, this letter is from me. Hello, Noreen and Ryan. 
Well, a tip of the cap to Anthony. This is real. I mean, nerd jokes aside, that is, I think, a great question. And if you're going to invest, uh, particularly in individual stocks, this is a great skill set to have. It's not necessarily an easy one to get. I had the good fortune of going through our analyst development program here at the Fool eight and a half years ago, and and we focused a lot on learning how to read financial statements. It can seem very boring and dry to a lot of people, but understanding how the numbers work gives you a better understanding of how the business works and what kind of growth may be there, and that all relates to the stock price. Uh, so, there are a lot of different places you can find this stuff. I mean, you can go to Google and just search financial statement education or whatever and find a million different resources. So, that's one way to look at it. Now, specifically, uh, there is a good page on the SEC. Website with a a nice succinct uh, rundown of the three main statements there: an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement. Uh, now I can't give you the link because it's this really long uh, link that I, I can't rattle off all these letters and numbers. But I can tell you if you Google the phrase "SEC Guide to Financial Statement." That will take you to this page, and we'll send out the link on the Motley Fool Answers Twitter feed and whatnot oh, as well. Man, now I got to put out a reminder to send <laughs> out a link. Don't worry, I got your back already on this. I You're was going to remind it? you. Sure. Okay. All right. All right. Um, I, I think God, homework. This is a great resource to go through and learn the basics of those three financial statements. And and I think, Anthony, that's what you're really gunning for here is a nice introduction that will give you then the opportunity to to dig a little bit deeper, ask some more questions, try to figure out what is more important to you. But they are very important uh, statements to to understand how to read if you're going to invest in individual stocks. And one other resource I'll just throw out there is the SEC has a neat little uh, educational Twitter feed, and that is at SEC underscore investor underscore ED. Uh, they, they throw a few tweets out every day that just sort of run all over the place with investor education. I think it's a fun one to follow. I always learn something new when I, when I check that out. I think I would add to that a little bit, maybe. If you are new, I think something that would help you gain confidence in what you're looking at is maybe to read other people's pitches or stock ideas. And I would recommend probably starting in one industry, something that you know maybe a little bit better or something maybe a little bit easier, like consumer goods, a familiar company, i.e. Starbucks, i.e. Target, whatever it is, and um, just reading through other people's pitches so you can get familiar with what people are looking for and what people are looking at. What do you mean by other people's pitches? Um, so, like, if you Google, like, you can go and well, Motley Fool has them, or like Seeking Alpha. If you go on and read someone's opinion about a different company, I just think looking at what people are using for metrics in particular industries could be a little bit more comforting than just taking in a lot of information mm-hmm. about metrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point too. Because I mean, if you think about it, a lot of these businesses out there they focus on very different markets, which means their financial statements account for different things. Uh, so, so you might have a subscription service that has deferred revenue involved, but then you may have something like just a straight up restaurant, which is fairly simple. They're just selling food to people. So, understanding the market that you're focusing on is going to help sort of dictate uh, what is more important to focus on with those financials. Yeah, it sounds like the point of his question is how to also sound like he knows what he's talking about at parties. Do you at those cocktail, those proverbial cocktail parties that we don't get invited to? Like, is there any clue when you're hearing someone talk about investing where you're like, all right, this person is just using a lot of accounting terms to sound smart and they really don't know what they're talking about? Well, I was thumbing through the cash flow statement last night and I noticed that accounts receivable went up over the last year. And 
Um, Any advice for Anthony to to be like to to call out the uh, the posers in the room? I well, if you're looking to call out people, there's always always ways to do that. <laughs> I, I I would just encourage you, Anthony, to make sure that you you just know what you're talking about. Okay, if you don't know something, it's okay to not know it. Go go find the answer. I mean, that's we do that all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't don't try to answer a question where you don't know the answer. Just say I don't know and then go look it up and figure it out. Um, understanding what line items are on what financial statement probably makes the most sense because they don't all have the same things and and, and whether you're talking about cash flow or net income, right? Understand the differences between the two because they are different. Um, and, and some investors like to focus on cash flow because they feel like there's some non-cash charges involved that give you a better idea of how much money the company is actually making uh, versus net income, which accounts for things a little bit differently. So, uh, just getting in and getting in there and understanding how all of the parts work to the whole on each financial statement because they are different and they they each serve their own purpose. Yeah, I found that uh, I really have to treat learning accounting terms and stuff like this like learning a new language. It's like learning a it whole is. new language, and I have to like, okay, what is that again? And I have to stop and think. It's like having to remember all the like, okay, a put is right. It's like it's oh, me yeah, having to remember options, options right. terms too. Yeah. I have to pause and be like, okay, so I think the stock's gonna go. You know, probably. And so it takes a while for me to really. I'm not. I'm not fluent. It's not. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not easy. And the only way to to really be good with a language to study it. Support for Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Like the economy, investing can seem complicated, but it doesn't have to be. At TD Ameritrade, one of their financial consultants will take the time to learn about you and your most important goals, then provide a step-by-step plan to put you on track toward pursuing them. To schedule a complimentary goal planning session today, visit tdameritrade.com slash podcast. Give me a word, give me a sign. Show me where to look and tell me what will I find? What will I find? Alright, next question comes from John. My dad helped me open a Roth IRA when I was 16 by cashing in the U.S. savings bond I was given as a baby. Aww. It started off at around $2,000. In 12 years of depositing what I could and with the help of Molly Full Stock Advisor, my Roth has grown to over $60,000. At this point, my account has 12 stocks and two index funds. At the beginning of 2016, I bought into Vail Resorts based on a Stock Advisor recommendation. Since then, the stock has more than doubled and is now more than 15% of my portfolio. This has me wondering, how much is too much to have in one stock? Does it make sense to sell off some of a winner in order to get closer to the recommended 15 stocks. So, yeah, this is a tough one. It is. It's and, and I mean, it's you give it sort of that that typical well, the answer is going to be different for everyone there, uh, John. Um I, I for me personally, I feel like if your goal is to get to this recommended at least 15 stocks in your portfolio, that's fine. I don't know that I necessarily would want to sell a winner in the name of getting there. Um, it's okay to to not have fifteen stocks right, in your portfolio. Right, it's not like a golden right? number where something clicks in. Exactly. And, oh, I mean, you, you don't get a prize. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's um it really we use that as a as a benchmark for a lot of folks because most people don't invest in just individual stocks. They tend to invest either in four hundred one k's or funds or whatever. Uh, so the fifteen is just a nice number that we use. You may have fewer. You may have more. It depends on on what what helps you sleep at night. But regardless, if you're asking, would I sell off a winner in order to get to that fifteen? No, I wouldn't. Um, I tend to feel like if one stock is making up at least twenty percent of your portfolio, 
you better know what that company's doing, and, and you better feel pretty confident about where where it's headed. Uh, but that's still okay if if you're, you're hanging on to a, a really good company. I, I just don't want to sell winners unless I have a really good reason to do it. It's really fun to let those winners run. Unless you have a better place for it, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, a very good point. Unless you have a better place for it, and, and and again, I mean, you could sell that winner, but then you also have to remember that you better be right on on the companies where you're putting that money because you could be wrong, and then you feel kind of foolish, little that foolish, that you sold off some of a winner just to get to some arbitrary fifteen stock number. I think it's also worth noting, like usually we say fifteen just for diversification, but if he owns funds anyway in there, you're already getting a little bit of diversification. So I would second Jason's answer on the I don't think I wouldn't. Yeah. And I'll just commend John and his dad for opening a Roth IRA when he was sixteen. Yeah. His saving for retirement is definitely off to a good start. It's the right age to get it going. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Guillaume from Quebec, Canada. I love Quebec. Maybe. I've never been. Oh, you've got I've to never go. been to Canada anywhere. I think I would get along with Canada very well. We had to fly in through Toronto, and uh, we flew through Toronto in March. Just on a, believe it or not, stopping through Toronto to get to the Bahamas. Uh, going what? in a little bit the opposite direction. I know uh, cheaper <laughs> tickets, but we ended up sleeping in the airport. Ugh. People were very nice, though. Way to go, Canada! Thanks. That's right. Thank you, Canada. All right, here's the question. <laughs> Uh, Guillaume writes, thanks to podcasts like yours, I went from don't talk to me about personal finance to woohoo, a new episode just got released over the course of a year. Aww. Isn't that nice? Isn't that nice? <laughs> uh, I have two questions that are somewhat related. One, I recently heard the following analogy. If you put all the active fund managers into a single room, they are basically the market. In every transaction, one of them makes a good deal and the other doesn't. Since it's very hard to identify in advance who will win and who will lose, you are better off just buying the market, using an index fund and getting the average performance of all the folks in the room. Of course, this came from an advocate of passive investing strategy. How, but how accurate is this analogy? Are market values really just the results of transactions between active fund managers? What about retail investors buying their own stocks or companies buying shares in other companies? And then we'll get to part two later. So. This one, I spent a lot of time this morning looking for up-to-date figures, and it's actually kind of hard to find. So the most recent thing that I could find was from 2009, and it was from the Virginia Law Review. But um, just for a couple metrics around those questions, retail investors own less than 30% of stock in U.S. corporations, and according to data from the New York Stock Exchange, trades by individual investors represent, on average, less than 2% of New York Stock Exchange trading volume for New York Stock Exchange-listed firms. So, basically what that means is not only do retail investors hold or have less to invest, but they do it less frequently. So, it's not that... um, they're not relevant, but it's not as um, market moving as some of these uh, institutional investors. But I think it's really a nuanced analogy with the second message, which is that it can be really challenging to outperform, quote unquote, the market. And so I guess when you think about that, um, there's a couple other things I just want to throw out. So according to JP Morgan, only 10% of all trading is regular stock picking. So we decide, define regular as fundamental discretionary trades. So um, that means basically looking at what the company is doing and where they predict that those numbers can go. The other remaining is a little bit of a mixture of things, but 60% trade on quantitative investing based wow. on computer formulas and machines or passive means. And I've actually seen that number in a various range of things from like 50 to 90. So yeah. um, I think 
when you think about people using these automated strategies or these quant-based strategies, you see a large number of people performing at an average level. So if you think about returns on sort of a bell curve, you have a lot of people in the middle, and then those tails get even smaller. So in some regards, in or in some thought, that would make it harder to outperform as most people are um, mean reverting, I guess. And then there's like another layer of outperformance, which is um, just according to Goldman Sachs, as of June 28th this year, the top 10 stocks in the S&P 500 have contributed more than 100% of S&P 500's year-to-date return. So if you took out the top 10 stocks, we would have actually been losing or had a down market yeah. for that first six months. So just an on top of that, within that, Amazon was 45% of your year-to-date return and contributed 36% of the index total return. So you have a really high concentration in a very few number of stocks, which also means that if you're a retail investor, you're severely disadvantaged if you don't own those stocks. And outperformance is, I would say, borderline impossible. So I think the, your, that analogy is relevant, and I think it's something to keep in mind, but I don't think it is the end-all, be-all consideration. And I think if you take um, what I like to believe is our approach of buying good companies and holding them over the long term, I think you can still do it because there are obvious, or not obvious, but companies that we're obviously less confident in. And to make an average, someone is below the average and some are above, and then you meet in the middle. So hopefully, if you're finding good companies, you can still outperform. But I would acknowledge that that is a very relevant analogy. Yeah. And if most of the market is just looking to see what the ticker blipped on a screen, Right, it's you have money following totally, money. Yeah, it's just totally, it's just a totally different way to invest. Completely. Yeah. All right. Then the second part of the question: Besides the active versus passive debate, there is another debate among retail investors: indexers versus dividend lovers. Would you please explain the pros and cons of each strategy, and if there is a way to combine both without being overexposed to some stocks? Yeah. So. Dividend investing across a long period of time has proven to be a strategy for outperformance in comparison to market index, so think S&P 500. Um, and there's a couple ways to do it, but the question of whether this trend continues is a significant question, just because right now they're demanding a higher valuation with comparatively lower outlooks. So generally speaking, if a company pays a sizable dividend, they're more likely more mature and less growth-oriented. So. Um, the benefits of index investing is that you gen- generally have a wider exposure to a variety of industries, but the drawback there is that you're going to have a high concentration in large-cap tech, which has been successful in recent times, but could prove a weak point in the case of a market downturn, just given their rich valuations. So, um, I think I know you mentioned it, but investing in an index and investing for dividends are not necessarily opposing strategies. But if you invest in both, you will find yourself overexposed to some large cap payers, i.e., JP Morgan, ExxonMobil, Johnson and Johnson, PG, Coca-Cola, the list goes on. Um, and I think, in my opinion, my answer to that question is that I personally wouldn't do a 50-50 split between those two. Um, but it varies by person, and if that's how you feel most comfortable. And typically, dividend payers are thought of as um, maybe a little bit more stable, a little more recession-proof, if that's where your mind's at. I think there's an argument to be made for that, but I don't know that I would necessarily recommend that. Yeah, well, it comes down to risk tolerance, right? Right. right. All right, our next question comes from, well, kind of from a couple people. So, uh, Alex Lindblad sent uh, the question over Twitter, and then Brian sent a similar question over email. So, 
Before we get to Brian's question over email, let's start with Alex over on Twitter. Alex wants to know if we could explain the mechanics of share buybacks. Does the company buy on the open market? Do they buy from private firms? Are the shares no longer available to the public? Et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so a couple of things. Typically, you'll see shares bought back either via tender offer, which is where they put out an announcement to shareholders and saying, hey, we'll buy back your shares, or they'll actually go on the open market and purchase those shares. A lot of times, those repurchases will cancel those shares outright. Sometimes, though, those shares will go into what's called treasury shares, where a company is not canceling them, but basically putting them in reserve in case they want to use them later on for compensation or if they want to reissue shares for some other reason, dividend and whatnot. Now, when a, a, a share is in treasury, it's not calculated in, in, in earnings per share figures or dividends or voting rights. Uh, they're just kind of sitting there on the bench, kind of like you know a lot of the guys on a football team. You got 11 guys on the field, and you probably got 40 of them sitting on the bench, right? They're in reserve. Everybody um, gets a Super Bowl ring, though. Those are yeah, exactly. <laughs> so those are gen- those are the general mechanics of buybacks. All right, then uh, let's move on then to address Brian's question, which gets into it a little bit more. What should I think about a company spending cash on buybacks? <clears throat> buybacks decrease share count, which means every share I have is slightly is a slightly larger piece of the company, and it means EPS goes up because there are fewer shares to divide the earnings by. But my shares are a slightly larger piece of a company with fewer assets, so shouldn't the plus of fewer shares and the minus of less cash cancel each other out? Furthermore, some companies seem to make questionable decisions regarding buybacks. McDonald's took on increased debt and spent more than their cash flow on buybacks. It appears to have worked out for them, but it was a risky move and could have gone wrong. Micron issued stock at a low price and now is buying back at a high price, which sounds like a questionable idea. I'm also very curious about whether the velocity of money in an economy is slowed by instituting buybacks instead of investing in capital improvements, research and development, higher wages, or even dividends. Some people are dismayed that so much money from tax cuts is going into buybacks instead of moving around in the economy. SEC Rule 10b18 is actually controversial, although I've never heard of it until recently. Well, Brian, I've never heard of it until you just said it. So, so I'll, I'll start actually by talking about that. So that was passed in 1982. Um, before then, stock buybacks were considered possibly illegal because it was basically seen as a company trying to manipulate its stock price, which frankly it kind of is. Mm-hmm. But then that got passed. And then stock buybacks started to soar. So in 1997, actually, companies began spending more money on buybacks than they do on dividends. So that's that for that rule. But I'll let Jason take the rest of this. I mean, I feel like we could seriously have an entire podcast just to talk about this topic alone. I mean, it is it is one that generates, I think, a lot of conversation. And it's we talk a lot about buybacks in conjunction with dividends because dividends are cash in the pocket. Buybacks. Are kind of theoretical if you think about it. I mean, you made the point there that if you buy shares back, you should, in theory, lower the number of shares outstanding, which would make your shares worth more. That's assuming that the company is not issuing more shares to pay for compensation or whatever. So the first thing is, whenever I look at buybacks, if I see a company that makes a lot of stock buybacks, I'm going to look on their balance sheet over time and look at the actual shares outstanding. Because if I see where that shares outstanding count is either flat or going up in the face of doing buybacks, then I've got a real problem with that. I mean, you're you're actually not really doing me any favors by buying back shares. You probably should either be giving that money to investors in the form of a dividend or reinvesting it in the business. Uh, and if you feel like you can't reinvest it in the business, maybe you're not the right leader for the business in the first place. Uh, now, with recent tax legislation, I think buybacks have become more of a point of controversy because 
uh, they're seen as helping out Wall Street while not really helping out Main Street. Now, I would argue that maybe Main Street should be a little bit more invested, and then at least you're being a part of that process and you're benefiting from it in some way, shape, or form. Uh, when it comes to buybacks, there's some great fact set data out there, and I've used this at a number of full presentations before. It goes back a number of years, and it shows without question how many companies get share buybacks wrong. And what I mean by that is they tend to buy back shares in times when markets are going up. When everything is hunky dory and your share price is through the roof, management's adding to that fire by saying, hey, you know, we're feeling so good about things, we're buying back more of our shares because everything is so great. Really, they should be buying back their shares when we want to buy their shares, right? On the cheap. But it's clearly through this data shown that when the market starts declining, when share prices go down, these management teams then cease those buybacks. They stop buying back shares. So most management teams out there actually get it wrong. Uh, every once in a while, you find management companies out there that do a pretty good job of it. Uh, but I think that there are a few signs to look for there. Number one, first and foremost, take a look at the balance sheet. Make sure that share account's actually going down. Do they do they issue a dividend? Could they issue a dividend instead? Uh, they talk about it a lot in the conference calls. I mean, there's just a lot of different ways to go with it. Um, and it's it's not you can't just blanket statement say they're good or bad. It is very company specific. But that fact set data shows very clearly that of all of the S and P 500 companies, a lot of them really do get it wrong. Right. According to the Wall Street Journal, to this year, the companies in the S and P 500 are on record to buy back more than 800 billion dollars worth of stock, which would be a record. Yep. The previous record was something like 560 million in 2007, which of course was right before the Great Recession and the stock market dropped by more than half percent. So there is a little, there is certainly evidence of people getting it wrong. They buy back their shares at the wrong time. What they would say to you today is, "Where else am I going to put it?" Um, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway came out with some different guidance recently about when they'll buy back their shares, which people took as a hint that. Maybe they'll even they'll start doing more of it because there's just not that many other great opportunities out there. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point there because also with Berkshire Hathaway for a very long time, I mean, a lot of investors have asked, "When are you going to start paying a dividend?" And and just sort of the standard answer has been, "Well, we feel like we can do more with that capital on your behalf as opposed to just giving it to you in the form of a cash dividend." And I think at this point, when they, when they announced that they raised that threshold for buying back their own shares, I, I got to believe that question is only going to become louder amongst the investing community. I mean, why not just give us a dividend now if you feel like you're running out of places to put that cash? Yeah. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So, don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. LinkedIn is more than the world's largest professional network. It's also a better way to find great talent. 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week, in every industry, even yours and mine. Hundreds of thousands of businesses posted jobs to LinkedIn in the last year, and because LinkedIn considers skills, experience, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, those businesses rank LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Go to linkedin.com slash MF and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash MF for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions apply. Although we had no money, I was rich as I could be in my coat of many colors. 
my mama made for me. All right, our next question comes from Tanya. Recently, the Motley Fool's Market Pass service recommended McCormick, and in doing research, I noticed two ticker symbols, MKC and MKCV. After Googling, I learned the difference is non-voting versus voting, or non-preferred versus preferred. When given a choice, should we always choose voting stocks? Do the stock prices always mirror each other? If and when I learn to trade options, do the prices of the options differ between voting and non-voting stocks? Tanya, I feel like the stars have aligned here for me to answer this question, and I'm so happy that you used McCormick as an example because it's one of my favorite companies in, ex- in it's existence. It's the spice company, right? It is the spice company. It's it's in everybody's pantry all over this country. Yeah, but it, it's like you five year, It's like five years old cinnamon. Not for people like me that cook dinner every night. I'm buying that stuff hand over fist every week. It seems like um, I, I, it's it's a good question, and I, you know it's it's funny we we talk about the the privilege of being able to vote i mean a lot of times we're talking about just in, in our democracy but but i think a lot of times that also translates to investing in and it is important i think to recognize that as a shareholder that means you are a part owner of the business and you have a voice now with that said i personally and and i'm sure a lot of people will disagree with this i personally couldn't care less about it. <laughs> I just don't care. And the main reason why is because I understand the reality of the fact that I will have no say so in what that company does. Because oh, I'm the just principle, Jason. The I, exactly. Of it's voting. the principle. It's the principle, right? But here's why here's why I'm saying this. Because I do agree with you. I like the principle. I like being able to have my voice heard. And I do. They make it very easy. Your brokerage will send you out the the documents and you just click a few buttons and vote. It is great to get that on the record for posterity. The problem is when you have a company and you see a disparity in the share price, I personally would not pay more for voting privileges. Okay, And I think a good example that a lot of investors could relate to here, um, other than McCormick, would be Under Armour. Under Armour recently split, and they now have UA and UA... A, right? And and so one share gives you the vote, one share gives you no vote. Understanding full and well that founder and CEO Kevin Plank is in full control of the business no matter what you vote. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate the ability to do it. I appreciate the principle. With that said, I would not pay more for it. Do the prices track each other? Or it sometimes sounds to me like there do. is a difference. Sometimes. It seems over time they get a little bit closer. It seems that Delta closes over time. We've seen it with Zillow and we've seen it with uh, Alphabet. Uh, and we're seeing a bit, a bit more with Under Armour. And, and so I think it's okay if, if all things being equal, sure, get the voting share. I just wouldn't pay more for it. Especially not as in going back to our previous question, not as in. Retail investor, your yeah. vote's not going to have a big enough impact to really. Yeah, it's not that your vote doesn't matter. So, it's just there no, are institutions no, out there with exactly a lot what, more no, shares. That's exactly than what you said. You said my vote doesn't matter. Well, Why do you hate democracy? <laughs> hey, let's not get into that. Okay, I love democracy. <laughs> Go back to Canada with Guillaume. They have, wait, they have democracy, democracy up there. Too. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> ah, who doesn't love Canada? Come on. Well, you guys, that's going to do it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having it's us. Been great. And you'll come back? Definitely. Yay! <laughs> yeah. And you have no, to come I'll back, come Jason. Back. I'll corner you and make you come yeah, back you in here. You don't even have to. I mean, all you got to do is just you just send out that spidey sense. I'll hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Dig deeper into the mailbag where it gets a little more personal. Really? 
can't. Well, well, yeah, because people send us nice things oh, and say nice things nice. about yes. us. Yes, which, right. which literally makes our day. It does. Ken Ma over. Well, the first one we messed up. Ken Ma over on our podcast Facebook page um, had a correction for us. Oh, really? Ken writes, just listen to the Full Answers podcast. Credit card trends to watch with Austin Smith. He points out that uh, Austin said that the Chase Ultimate Rewards points don't transfer as well as a niche card. He says that's actually false. Ultimate Rewards points transfer to those like Southwest, Hyatt, etc. at a one-to-one ratio. Ultimate Rewards points are actually the most valuable rewards points available out there. So, I sent that message to Austin and said, what have you done? (laughs) Offering bad advice. Uh, And he said, I probably misspoke, but he meant it generally that uh, all-in-one rewards cards often don't transfer their points at as high a rate, and that those limit your redemptions to just the one platform. So something to look out for, but don't. Uh, but apparently, ultimate rewards cards great. They don't pay me money to say that. So, <laughs> all right. I want to thank everyone who left a review on iTunes in July. Um, let's assume these are all pronounced incorrectly. Uh, <laughs> Durzel. Chef Nog, Lori Lou sixty nine. I think I already thanked Ord two sixty seven foe. But maybe not. Um, all of you said some really lovely things on iTunes, and it means so much to us that you guys are willing to take the time to go and do that. Uh, I was sort of bummed that we hadn't received any postcards for a while. Didn't it seem like we were going through a drought, despite me asking people? Yes. So, so I go to Office Ops, where the mail comes in, and I was like, hey, have we gotten any postcards lately? And she was like, no. I was like, oh. Bummer, you know, and I kind of sad, you know, Charlie Brown walk away. <laughs> and then literally 15 minutes later, she comes to my desk and she's like, Oh, I found some, and drops like a pile of eight postcards on my <laughs> desk. So, I was, so, anyway, turns out uh, Office Ops was sitting on a pile of them, not literally, but maybe literally. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Stocks! David sent us a postcard from Peru. <laughs> Danny sent a postcard from the Super Bowl. He wow. works at uh, ESPN. He's getting his MBA. Uh, a postcard from uh, Washington Irving, Washington, was sent from Perkins Cove, Maine, Perkins Cove. Uh, yes, Daniel and Rachel, your postcard with the sheep from Ireland arrived. Stocks, bonds, and puffins. <laughs> Anthony and Susanna, our favorite ballroom dancers, sent us a card from the California coast. Jason sent a card from Mackinac Island, Michigan, and it's adorable Main Street. It was our first postcard from Michigan. Outstanding. Uh, my mom sent us a belated postcard from Malta, which is hilarious. Thanks, Mom. Uh, Rich, Some guy named Rich sent a postcard from Dollywood? <laughs> Does that mean anything to you guys? I don't know. Rich. Thank you. Thank you, Richard Richard Engdahl, for sending your postcard. If it says Rich, it's just sloppy handy. That's handy. what I figured. It says, it says Rick, I think. Yeah, it says Rick. Uh, so we have, uh, over the last years, received literally hundreds of postcards from listeners, and we treasure them all. Uh, so if you want to send us a postcard highlighting any um, any state or country, we'll take it. There's a lot of states that we haven't gotten some from, like Alabama and Ohio, Some maybe some of the less touristed states. We still know. love you. Send us your we'll postcards from your neighborhood. We'll still take postcards from there. Uh, our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. And I will Let's have a disclaimer. As always, Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about today. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard on this show, please. That's the show! 
It is edited. Dolly Woodingly. I don't know. Nine to fiveingly. Nine to fiveingly. <laughs> sure, we'll do that. Jolinely by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.